if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at verse 36, and I'm going to be reading all the way down to verse 50. That's the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, starting at verse 36. I don't know in your Bibles, but my Bible has this title, A Sinful Woman Forgiven. Verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom forgave, who he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair on her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the reading of the living and true God. Let us pray. Father, we come before you, before your throne this evening, Lord. And Lord, we pray for the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you will come down in power to help me preach this message which you have prepared. Father, I pray that the people will be ready to listen. Lord, rebuke where rebuke is needed. Lord, encourage where encouragement is needed. And Lord, may this all be to the praise and the glory of your great name. Lord, get me out of the way and let Christ increase. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the title of my sermon this evening is called Saving Faith. Saving Faith. This evening, I'll and we're going to be looking at the well-known account in Luke's gospel of the sinful woman and the Pharisee. We at Jacksdale as a church these last few weeks have been looking at the doctrine of assurance, that those 
who are in Christ can be assured that they have everlasting life. Ryan, who has preached here many times, preached a few Sundays ago, that we can be sure that we are God's children because he has given us his spirit. We can be sure that we are the children of the Most High because the third person of the Blessed Trinity now dwells in all those who have repented and come to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. You may you know Austin Walker. He came a few Sunday ago, a few Sundays ago as well, and he preached on Philippians one uh, that God, who has begun a good work in us, He will finish it. We can be assured that if God has started something in our lives, that we can be assured that He will finish it because God does not go back on His word. So this message today will really much tie in with the doctrine of the assurance of our salvation. But this evening, I especially want to talk to those people who may come to church week in, week out, hear the wonderful truths of Christ, hear of the saving power of his gospel. But secretly, they say to themselves, well, that's well and good for them but you just don't know what I have done. You just don't know my situation. I'm just one step too far. I've done that thing again. I will never have assurance. Some of you sat here may have never struggled with assurance of salvation, and you may be asking yourselves, are these people who think like this really Christians? I've never struggled with this. I know the saving power of the gospel. How can these people feel such things? Can someone really doubt that they have salvation and be a partaker of eternal life? I can 100% tell you that there really are Christians who come to church week in, week out, who really, really do struggle with the concept that all their sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, comments on this particular topic. He writes, I quote, A person may have saving faith in Christ and yet never enjoy an assured hope such as the Apostle Paul enjoyed. To believe and have a glimmering hope of acceptance is one thing. To have joy and peace in our believing and abounding hope is quite another. All of God's children have faith, but not all have assurance. I think we ought never to forget this, end quote. This is why I believe that the doctrine of assurance and being sure of the gospel and really understand justification by faith should be taught week in and week out. Martin Luther, the the great reformer, says that he preaches justification by faith to his people every week because every week they forget it. Many Christians are walking around and they have no peace in their hearts. They miss what Jesus says in verse 50 when he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this affects the way these people worship. It affects the way these people pray. And it definitely will affect how they will serve the Lord. Remember what Nehemiah said, do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Lacking assurance makes people inward looking. It makes them constantly 
looking at their sin. It makes them constantly fearful of God's judgment. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for self-examination. Of course there is. But when Christians are truly Christians and they are lacking assurance, they're not people who want to go out there into the open air and preach the gospel. Do you think Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, lacked assurance? Or do you think he had confidence in what the Lord had done in his life and confidence in what the gospel said about his sin and what God has done in Christ through the gospel? So we must look at this topic and we must be sure that we have an assurance of our salvation if we be in Christ. On the other hand, we also must be careful because the Bible does talk of such thing as a dead faith, which is not saving faith. There is a repentance, which is a worldly repentance, which will lead to death. There are unfortunately people who have a dead faith and it will lead to condemnation. This woman in Luke 7, which we have read this evening, had saving faith. As Jesus tells her, her many sins are forgiven. She is told to go in peace. So how can we know the difference? How can we know that we have saving faith? Because if we have saving faith, we can be assured of our salvation and assured that we have everlasting life. There is no more important question to ask ourselves. Do we possess saving faith? So this is what we are going to be looking at this evening. Do we possess saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So this brings me to my first heading, and it's titled, Outward Respect to Christ. That's an outward respect to Christ. We read in verse 36, the first verse which we looked at, it reads, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. We must be aware that there are such people who have what we call an outward respect to Christianity or to Christ. We know that the Pharisees were one of the greatest enemies in Christ's earthly ministry. But on some occasions, they looked as though they respected him. And this is because regardless of what they thought about him, he absolutely were, they were absolutely fascinated by his teaching. They often marveled and said, because he was one who preached and taught with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees in those days. Simon the Pharisee would have been no different. In this account, we do not see a man who is concerned for his sin or even his own soul, but a man who is just inviting Jesus to eat with him. The reason Simon the Pharisee would have most likely invited him to eat with him was to boast having this new rabbi to eat and have his ego exalted. We must remember, brethren, that Jesus at this time would have been very famous. This account happened shortly after the Beatitudes, so many people would have been following Jesus at this time. Jesus literally would have been the talk of the town. As, as I said, he would have been one who spoke with authority, not like the teachers of his day. So the Pharisees, even though having, so Simon, this Pharisee having Jesus round, would have more than likely had him round to have a ploy to gain information about him and even to boast, as I said, that he has got a new rabbi sat with him in his house. We also know that the, the Pharisees were very, very religious. They could not see the state of their own souls because of their own religiosity. 
they poured themselves over the scriptures and they thought the scriptures brought them life, but they were blind. They couldn't see. Jesus says in, in John five thirty nine, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. They had such a high view of themselves that they were totally ignorant of Christ's gospel. They poured their hearts over the scriptures, but they revolted at the message of Christ because Christ convicted men of sin. He said to the Pharisees, you sinners, God sees your heart. He was not impressed with the lofty prayers and the the hand washing every two minutes. He says, God sees your heart. He knows who you are, your sinners. So they showed an outwards respect to Christ just to ask him questions and use something he said against him. My point is this, brethren, do we not see this in the day that we live? How often do you hear people say to you, I'm glad that you have faith in the Lord Jesus. I'm glad that you have Christianity. That works for you, but it's just not for me. How often do we hear that, brethren? Then suddenly these these same people will start asking you questions about what you believe about certain issues and certain topics from a Christian perspective. What do you believe about this or what do you believe about that? And really they're trying to catch you out about something that they think is wrong that you believe. And they can use that against you because really they hate what you stand for because you stand on the rock of Christ. And they will try and use whatever you say against you. So they show an outward respect to Christ and Christianity because we live in a day where we have to be seen to be doing the right thing and respect everyone's opinion. But then as soon as they hear the message of Christ, They revolt and they hate the message. Some of you who go into the open air, you may see this for yourself. How often somebody will come and say, what do you believe about gay marriage? And all they're doing is trying to cause a ruckus. They're trying to cause antagonism and they'll show an outward respect to you so they can gain information. And this is what the Pharisee was doing. And I say we also need to be careful of this in the church. You may be saying, well, what do you mean in the church? This Pharisee, as I said, more than likely wanted to seek social status from having Jesus at his house. He more than likely wanted to boast to people about having this one who speaks with authority with him to eat. People in that day, people in our day may not be coming to Jesus for social gain. But how many people do you see? proclaim a Jesus and they'll come to Jesus because they have been told that when they come to Jesus, they will have all their earthly riches fulfilled. They will become rich and they will become satisfied in this life that the Jesus that they will, that they, that they preach is a Jesus who will fix all your problems in this earth right now. People are making millions of this false gospel just for a so-called blessing and wanted the blessing instead of Jesus himself. These people, again, have an outward respect for Jesus, 
but they really just want earthly success. You know, I'll take a Jesus that fixes all my problems. I'll take a Jesus that gives me a BMW and a, and a bank account that'll never run out. Yeah, I'll take that Jesus. And these people are no better than the Pharisees of that day, following man-made religion to satisfy their own desires. And when these people hear the true message of Jesus, they react just as the world and the Pharisees reacted. Hatred antagonism towards Christ and we almost ask ourselves even in this room what are our motives in coming to the Lord Jesus if we are coming for any reason than for Jesus himself we are coming for the wrong reason we must ask ourselves this if we are coming to church just because we like the people and the things that go off in the church then are we really coming for Christ? Now, I'm not saying we're not to like the people. We are to love the brethren. The one John tells us, if you love the brethren, you've passed from darkness to life. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if we just like the things that go on in the church, we like the nostalgia, we like the things that we've always done, then we're coming for the wrong reasons. And I'm saying this because, unfortunately, it is a reality in some places There are churches where people have been going to the same building for years and years, but they have never understood the message of Jesus Christ. What you end up getting is dead religion instead of a relationship with the Savior. What sadly happens is a building becomes a museum for good and moral people instead of what the church really is. And that is a hospital for broken, wretched sinners. We must remember that. Our Lord did not come for those people who think they are getting on through life pretty okay by themselves. I'll take a Jesus that gives me a BMW. No, Jesus didn't come for those people. Jesus had no time for people as well who thought they were morally or religiously good. Remember what he said. I have come to seek and save those who are lost. Those who know they have no righteousness of their own. Simon the Pharisee had no interest about hearing about his spiritual bankruptcy. The Pharisees thought they were doing just fine on their own. And the people of the day that we live, they think they're getting on pretty okay by themselves. I say this, you ask a criminal, am I a good person? They'd say, yeah, I've done some bad things but I'm getting on pretty okay on my own. I know that I'm a, I know that I've done that. I know I've done this, but you know, I've got some good works as well. I think I'll be okay on judgment day. You know, I'm not that, but I'm not Hitler. The Lord Jesus didn't even come for those people. The Lord Jesus is very clear for who he came for in Luke five. He says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He hasn't come for the so-called righteous. He hasn't come for those who want to add a little religion to their lives. But wretched, filthy sinners, like the man standing in your pulpit. And you here, if you know who you are, a sinner. Which brings me to my second point. A bruised reed 
he will not break. A bruised reed, he will not break. Break. We read in our uh, passage when we get to verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask and of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair on her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner this woman is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In verse 37, we are told that this woman comes into Simon's house and she knew Jesus was eating at his table. We know very little about this woman in question. Some people have tried to say that this is Mary Magdalene, but many commentators would question that notion. What we do know is that this woman, she was known for being a notorious sinner. A notorious sinner. We need to realise, brethren, that this isn't the ordinary sinner. If there is such thing as an ordinary sinner, she was the harlot, the prostitute. This woman would literally have been the scum of the earth. And people would have seen, would not want to be seen in broad daylight with her. She would have been classed as unclean, a vile woman, a sinner of sinners. And now she is at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ, weeping and washing his feet with her tears. J.C. Rowell, in his commentary, says that this woman more than likely owes her conversion to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11 which are not recorded in Luke's gospel, where he say, where the Lord Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These words, brethren, would have pierced her through. We must remember she was an outcast in the day that she lived. She was an absolute lost cause. Then she will have heard the words of Jesus saying, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This woman knew she was a sinner and that there was no hope for her in the religious system of the day. J.C. Ryle also comments on this passage and says this woman would have been well known for committing the crime on the seventh commandment. She would have broken the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. This woman knew that she would have broken the law of God. She knew if she was tried for her crimes that there was only one thing that awaited her. If she was found guilty, the penalty was death. And we must remember, brethren, there was no sacrifice in the Jewish religious system for adultery. It was death. Simon the Pharisee confirms what the people of the day thought. He said, if this man, if this man was a prophet, he would know what manner of woman is touching her, for she is a sinner. But Simon the Pharisee had no idea who he was in the presence of. This Jesus who is God in the flesh, who is the friend 
of publicans and sinners. He knew exactly what this Pharisee was thinking for Jesus is God. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knew what this man was thinking. He says, I have something to say to you, Simon. Two people have a debt, a larger one and a smaller one. They both can't pay them. They're both forgiven. Which one will love more? What Jesus is saying here, look, Simon, yes, this woman has sinned greatly. She knows who she is. She knows what she's done. You, on the other hand, you think you're morally good. You think you keep the law. You think you're on good terms with God. Simon is is much like the world today. They do not see themselves as sinners. They think they are at heart morally good and they see no need for forgiveness at all. At all. Simon may not have committed adultery, but remember what the Lord Jesus said. He says, if you so much as look at a woman with lust, if you look at anyone with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. The problem with this Pharisee is they thought that the law would save them. Much like the world today, they believe if they just follow the law of the land, they live a decent so-called moral life, that when they die, and you'll hear them, if there is a heaven, God will let me in for I am wonderful. If you're in the open air, you will see that very, very statement. Remember what the Lord says in Proverbs. He says, every man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Simon, like the rest of the unconverted world, did not see himself as a sinner, but as one who is fulfilling the law. But what blows me away, brethren, is the heart of our Lord and Saviour, the heart of Jesus himself. What I find remarkable about this passage is Jesus had every right to bring this woman's sins to mind and judge her. For the sins that she committed were ultimately ultimately against him. If Jesus would have picked up a stone and said, you wretched, filthy sinner, and stoned her, let's be honest, Jesus would have had every right to do so. For he was God himself in the flesh. But he doesn't do that, does he? He embraces this woman. He embraces this woman who has broken probably every single commandment that is going. And remember what the prophecy in Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. Remember what Psalm 51 says, a broken and a contrite spirit God will not despise this woman knew what she was she was broken to the core about her sin she knew that Jesus was the only hope she had if there was anyone who could heal her she knew it was Jesus as she casts herself upon his mercy laying aside her sin and giving it to Jesus and taking upon the yoke which is easy and the burden is light. My point is this, brethren. Nobody who has come to Jesus in saving faith does not... Nobody who has saving faith in Jesus Christ thinks they're a good person. They don't. 
People who have saving faith in Jesus know that they are wretched sinners and they know their spiritual bankruptcy. Remember what he says, I have not come for those who are righteous, but for those who are sinners. I want to say this to you today, brethren. If you today know that you are a sinner, if you realize your sin and shame, if you see the sins that you've committed and you see the wretchedness, I say this, Jesus has come for you personally. I'm here to save you. I'm not here for that quiet man who thinks he's okay. I'm not here for that religious woman in the corner. I have come for you if you know you're a sinner. Listen to me, brethren. I don't care who you are and what you have done. If you have come to Christ and you know that you are a sinner, he will no wise cast you out. That is a promise. If you come to Jesus with an empty hand, say nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I, I cling. A bruised reed, he will not break. For our Lord delights in mercy. Some of you will be sat here thinking, yeah, Nika, you just don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I have let him down. You don't know how many times how I've promised him that sin that I'm battling with, I won't do it again. You just don't know my situation. I want to say this to you, friends. I want to say this to you, brethren. If that is you here tonight, the problem is not with the sin that you have committed. Yes, sin is atrocious and odious to God. But the problem with you is you don't believe the scriptures. You don't believe the scriptures that say, if we confess our sins, he, not you, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. I would say this to you, if you, if that is you who are struggling with assurance and that certain sin that keeps taking place or that certain sin that is still, that you are warring with, stop believing in your own feelings because that is part of your falling nature believe the word of god listen to me brethren i'm not making light of sin this evening i'm not i'm talking to you who are at war with sin i'm talking to you who are battling sin daily daily you're mortifying the deeds of the flesh by the spirit but the devil wants to come along and say yeah but what about that one there that you did what about that sin that you committed you really believe that god will forgive you I, listen, I say this to you, stop listening to your feelings and listening to the devil. For God says, if we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins. And I say this to you tonight, if you are battling sin, you're alive. Dead men do not know that they are dead. You see the world, they drink iniquity down like water and not but an eyelid. They go to sleep at night. They know they've committed atrocities, but they just sleep because they're dead. But if you're battling, if you're at war, if you're at war with your sin, you 
are alive. And I say this not because I say it. I say it because the Bible says your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. We miss that, do we not? Go in peace. Nothing can separate you from the love of God to those who have come to the Lord Jesus as a sinner. You will never, ever be cast out. That is a promise that your faith has brought you to Christ and it will bring you safe at the end of the race. He who has begun a good work in you will finish it. And when I say your faith, it is your faith. But where did that faith come from, I ask? Where did that faith come from? Ephesians 2 tells us, For by grace are you saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, brethren? Do you? Because if you do, that faith has come from somewhere. You haven't mustered it up in your own, in your own self. The Lord has given you a gracious gift that it's been given to you to have faith in his son. I'm not trying to make light of people who are not saved because we pray for those. But if you tonight look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you see the wonders and the majesties and the glories and the riches of Christ, why do you see that and not the person next to you? Yes, we pray for that person next to us. We really do. But why has that happened to you? Because God is at work. Because God has given you faith. He predestines. He foreknows. He calls. He justifies. He sanctifies. And he will glorify. The golden chain of redemption, brethren. If you have faith in Christ, God has begun a good work in you. And you can lay hold of your salvation because God is doing a good work. Oh, but my faith is weak, Nick. My faith is so weak at times. I say this to you. Even if your faith is as weak as a spider's thread, if that faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that spider web faith will carry you over the lake of fire and into the arms of Christ. Not because your faith is weak or whatever you, because that faith is attached to the Lord Jesus Christ, that rock that we can have a solid hope. He is the anchor of our soul. So when your faith is weak, I'm not saying we should stay there, but that weak faith will carry you over the lake of fire and into the hands of our Savior and our loving God. So if you are here today wondering, and you've been wondering over and over again, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Even though I still think that way sometimes and I still battle that area, I say this to you, if you've come to the cross as a broken sinner, one who knows that the Lord Jesus is your only hope, and you can truly say, not just say it from a hymn book, but you can truly say, nothing in my hands I bring. It's simply to your cross I cling. I say to you today, not I say, but the Bible, say if the Lord God says, you have everlasting life because God's not a liar. We lie. We get it wrong. But God says, you who come to me, I will know why cast out. Jesus says that. Let us read John. Let me just read this passage of scripture. 
John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe, talking of the Pharisees, but listen to what he says. All that the Father give me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the of this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it upon the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I just want to say to anybody here who struggles with, can you lose your salvation? Jesus says, I've come to do my will, and this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I should lose nothing. So if we can lose our salvation, if people can lose their salvation, Jesus has not done the will of the Father, and Jesus delights to do the will of the Father. So I say this, little flock of God, if you have faith in Christ tonight, if you have called upon his name, know this, you have saving faith and you have everlasting life. Everlasting means everlasting, not temporary. Everlasting life. So in that assurance, in that assurance, knowing that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ, which is in him, go and serve your king. Go and serve the living God who has called you to this eternal life and live for him. Live for him. Pray for revival. Pray that your family members will be saved. Be bold in your witness because there is nothing that can separate you from his love. Nothing whatsoever. And when that sin comes back to haunt you that you did in the past, when you did that thing, and the devil brings it to mind. He'd say, you can say to the devil, the Bible says, if I confess my sins, he is just to forgive us of all our iniquities. And the devil must flee because truth has been given him. Be assured, brethren, if you have come to Christ in saving faith, casting yourself upon his mercy, you have everlasting life. And if you haven't come, if you haven't come, the arms of Christ are willing to receive any who come to him. As it says in Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in abundance. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm that food. Come and eat of me, not the world. The world can offer you nothing. All that the world offers you is temporary pleasures and condemnation. But Christ, Christ offers life he says i have come that you may have life and life in more abundance and that does not mean the silly prosperity gospel it means you have life in him 
that we have life in Christ, that when we depart this world, we will stand in glory and see him face to face. And as we sang, we will cast our crowns before him. Oh, brethren, let us be a people of much thanks. Let us be a people of much thanks of the God who loved us. Amen.